Hi, welcome to the latest edition of Spotlight, uh, the Star Trek podcast coming at you from a non-tricky perspective. We have Mr. Star Trek with us here today, uh, David Livingston, who holds the record for the most Star Trek episodes directed by a single person. David Living Legend, that's the guy. Yeah, he was absolutely amazing to talk to. Uh, we caught him as he was literally about to start one of his new jobs as a, a jobbing photographer, uh, photographing an exhibition in, um, a, what was it, a uh, makeup was event makeup in... Makeup, like, convention or something? Yeah, like, where uh, the Kardashians would be out in force, the first <laughs> billion dollar 20-year-old uh, Chloe Kardashian. Like, well, I think you fucking hear Kanye in the background already. Yeah, <laughs> well, we must we must apologise. There is uh, yeah, occasionally some slight interference in the back, including at least two minutes of the new Kanye track, so enjoy. <laughs> David, uh, yeah, is astonishing uh, guy to talk to with his huge Star Trek body of work. Um, directed loads of classic episodes. Crossover, the first ever Mirror Universe episode of Deep Space Nine. Flashback, the George Takei starring episode of Voyager. I love Power Play, Next Gen classic, uh, where you get to see Troy and Data like be possessed by ghosts. I love that one. <laughs> Regeneration, the Borg episode of the Enterprise. Uh, so good that David couldn't remember it himself, and he directed too many. it. <laughs> and, but he also had a hand in like you know um, the best of both worlds as a kind of producer. Um, he um, basically is directed on Next Gen, DS9. Voyager and Enterprise and has stories on all of them. We also engaged in plenty of uh, film chat, um, some great anecdotes about George Lucas and other sort of graduates of USC who uh, David was like, we were like two years ahead of or two years behind. So some amazing people he was uh, familiar with at that point. We also get to touch on his love of the Beatles and British crime drama, among other things. So buckle up and enjoy the ride with our interview with David Livingston. So, first of all, uh, one thing we always like to ask um, people who were involved in the Star Trek world was, were you a fan before you came to work for the franchise? No. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, interesting. So, So, how did you come to find yourself working on it, and did you become a fan as time went on, as you spent quite a lot of time working on it, obviously? Yeah, um... In the 60s, I was a fan of uh, things like a man, The Man from Uncle, and uh-huh. uh, I never watched uh, the original Star Trek. But uh, I was working at ABC Circle Films as a production manager, and uh, they asked me to come over and interview uh, for the job as the production manager on this Star Trek uh, pilot. They were reinventing the, uh, um, uh, the program. And I came over and interviewed, and they hired me for the pilot. This was in uh, February of uh, 87. I had heard about Gene Roddenberry and what a revered figure he was uh, in that in that world. And uh, I came to be a fan. Uh, I respected Gene's uh, uh, outlook for the future, that there was hope for man and that uh, he had a positive view of, uh, of what we could achieve. And that was very inspiring. And I and I came to understand how it and how uh, how that affected so many people as well, including my own. And so when you start, this is what became Encounter at Farpoint, the, the two-parter, to kick off the show. Um, so really, you just treated it like any other job then when you were kind of there. What was your role essentially as, I think, a producer, associate producer for that show? I started off as the, a unit production manager, which is a below-the-line function, uh, which is responsible for managing the crew, hiring the crew, and preparing the budget and then administering that budget and then supervising the production uh, from a managerial and operational standpoint. So it's not a producer function, it's a non-creative uh, financial business uh, production-oriented function. Um, it was obviously, you know, as, we, as we've heard since, you know, since the kind of like the show was on, uh, quite a difficult production uh, at first. Uh, how was that to be on the kind of ground floor with that? Um, pilots are always tough, and uh, this one had a lot of high expectations, so uh, there were budgetary constraints, production constraints, which made it um, a difficult pilot, but I had done a lot of pilots in the past, so for me it was it was pretty formulaic, but I did sense the uh, sort of largesse of it uh, and how much Paramount depended on it, uh, depended on its success. It was the first uh, episodic uh, our uh, television program for syndication. 
so it was a whole new paradigm in terms of, of television production and syndication. And and again, they were trying to honor the uh, the, the Star Trek uh, legend and and live up to uh, what what the fans expected of it, as well as drawing people into this new uh, formula of syndication. Uh, it was not an immediate overnight success, but over the course of the season, it, it grew in its audience. And then, uh, as everybody knows, by the seventh season, uh, it was uh, a huge success and actually was nominated for Best uh, a dramatic series in its last season. But because of the feature production demands, uh, even though the cast and the producers were willing to go in eighth season, uh, the studio pulled the plug on it. But yes, the first... The first season was fraught, uh, and there were difficulties, but that's that's true with uh, with any pilot. And like, it's interesting that you kind of like. I mean, I'm right in saying that you stepped up to produce uh, kind of with uh, Best of Both Worlds. Would you would you say that that was a kind of pivotal moment for the show? Yeah, I, th- I think it was more evolving, but there were certainly seminal episodes uh, that that caused it to uh, find its focus. Uh, Events like introducing the Borg, so you had a profoundly uh, a, a nemesis that was really a nemesis and not just the creature uh, of the week. So, David, being that you said you started a non-creative capacity, how was it you actually came to end up directing episodes of the show from, I believe, the first one you directed was in season four, uh, The Mind's Eye? How did that come about to you moving into that creative capacity? Um, Rick had a, had the DIT school. Uh, it's an acronym for director in training. And uh, he asked if I wanted to become part of the program. And I said, sure. Uh, I had gone to USC film school and always wanted to become a director, but uh, fell into the, the business side. Uh, so uh, I did a lot of study and scene study, working with actors um, and observing, sitting in on editorial sessions, observing a lot on the set, talking to other directors and and editors, and uh, finally uh, Rick offered me uh, the opportunity to direct. Cool, so how did you, I mean, as you say, you always wanted to direct, so I presume you grabbed that opportunity with both hands. How did it feel to finally, after being there and observing uh, from a kind of different standpoint for almost four years, how it feel to be able to get your teeth stuck into that project and really be able to direct the show? Best job I ever had. <laughs> yeah, I was never comfortable doing any other job in show business except directing. Uh, it felt natural to me. Uh, I felt like a kid in the candy store. I cherished every day and every job that they gave me, and I always gave my utmost to it because I felt a sense of responsibility, but also because it was so much fun. It was, it was not work for me. It was play. And even though I didn't uh, necessarily have all the greatest scripts in the world, I was just going to say that you directed the first Mirror Universe episode of DS9 uh, crossover, uh, which is obviously quite significant as they've just gone back to the Mirror Universe in Discovery. And there's quite a lot of similarities with the relationship between Kira and her Mirror Universe version and that of Michael and Giorgio in a certain extent. Absolutely. There's, uh, uh, I love the Mirror episodes and there's... Uh, it's always good when one of the cast members can take a bubble bath. So uh, crossover was great. It cost. It almost cost me my uh, directing career because I went a day over budget. I explained to the producers and to uh, Paramount Productions that it was going to be a difficult episode and that I could not make the schedule as it was laid out. And they said, we don't care. you got to make the schedule. And I didn't and went a day over and got into a lot of trouble. <laughs> But, like, you'd had so much under your belt at a point. I mean, you, your alarm bells are ringing because you just know how long things take. And I, yeah, I, it's amazing. I it, yeah. I, better, better than anybody, and I, this is not to be, not to brag, but I knew better than anybody how long it took to do an episode uh, from my production manager experience all the way through producing and directing. I knew what it takes, and I told them, uh, but no, the thing is, <laughs> studio and, and production mentality is, we have to take the party line and say, we are going to do this show for this amount of money and this amount of time, knowing full well that it will never happen. And I was, I've been involved in so many productions, not just on Star Trek, where indeed everybody uh, uh, pulls a blinder over their eyes and says, uh, okay, we're just going to go for it and we'll deal with it uh, later. And unfortunately, the episodic directors are the ones who take it in the shorts. And fortunately, at least I was a producer on the show, so I could deflect some of the uh, 
have some damage control. And Rick, God bless him, was always supportive of me, even when everybody else was uh, railing against me. And I don't mean to sound paranoid, but my psychiatrist did tell me last week that I'm not paranoid, that everybody is plotting against me. So that's, that's was the money it went over budget just all spent on exploding Odo? <laughs> uh, no, uh, no, but that was pretty cool. I actually went to uh, uh, the uh, effect shop when they blew up Odo, and uh, they had an extra one, so I got to take it home, and I, I kept it in my garage for years <laughs> until, it, until it kind of melted, and then I had to throw it away. But I, I oh, just to blow up man. yourself later on. People have said, if you kept that kind of thing in the fridge, people ask questions, I think. Well, I would have been a rich man on eBay, but uh, I, I used to get I used to get the merchandising boxes from Star Trek um, from Paramount, and if I had kept all of the stuff that they had sent me, I'd never have to work again. Uh, but it, it, it's all gone. I, I I didn't keep any of it. Well, Dave, it sounds like you do you love to work. Though. I think you know you you've sort of carving out like a new career, new photography, that kind of thing. Is, is this like a new chapter for you at the moment with what you're what you're doing? Yeah, I've been doing this for 12 years now. Oh, wow. That's some time then. Well, I know yeah. that you started doing photography of the Hollywood sign. Is that right? That became an exhibition? Yes. And is that how you got into this kind of new phase of your career, is it? Yeah, I, uh, I live in the Hollywood Hills uh, on a street called Beechwood, uh, Beechwood Drive. And I live in a, a 1924 Hollywood, Hollywoodland house. The Hollywood sign used to say Hollywood Land, which was an advertisement for a housing development uh, up in the Hollywood Hills. And I bought one of those houses back uh, 18 years ago. And I was so enamored by the Hollywood sign and the social uh, phenomenon about people wanting to come and, and see it uh, that I did this uh, photo exhibit. And, and that then led to uh, doing a lot more photography and finally getting to... Uh, shooting uh, celebrities and red carpet events. But I'm not a paparazzi. I do not hide in bushes. <laughs> Most of the time I don't. Outside rehab, yeah. We're, we're <laughs> yeah, glad to hear it, David. We're glad to hear it. Thank you. Um, Thank you. So, yeah, no, moving on to Star Trek uh, Voyager just for a second. Of course, you directed Flashback uh, with the returning Sulu, uh, George K, uh, in that episode. Like that must have felt like quite. Um, that must seem like quite a big deal on set. I would imagine having him come back for that. Absolutely, and I uh, I'm very proud of my reveal of of, uh, of George, uh, where he comes out of this uh, uh, a cloud of fog uh, from the, the bridges under attack, and he comes out and I shot him really low, and and he looks uh, uh, very impressive. And I, I see George periodically with his uh, with his husband on the. Uh, he comes in uh, to events and on the carpet, and, and I always remind him about uh, how ma magisterial I made him look. <laughs> Does he <laughs> insist you use fog every time you shoot him now? Uh, I, he probably would, I would think. I, that was my only opportunity. But it was, it was <laughs> fun having him there, and it was fun trying to integrate uh, footage from the, uh, from the fe feature and trying to make it all meld together seamlessly. And uh, I think the effects people did a good job on that. I, I, I remember that when it came out, and I'm not expecting it, and just being so seamless with Star Trek VI. I was, uh, as a young fan, I, I, I absolutely loved that episode. Uh, any, any shots to see the old like uh, crew was, was terrific. Um, but yeah, Takai like takes such good care of himself. It's like that, like no time had passed between those five yeah. years. Uh, today, the same way. He he's never aged. He's he's quite a phenomenon, and and uh, he, he's a, quite a character. Well, you, you see him do his push-ups on late night TV, like <laughs> oh yeah, it's his setups yeah, he, routine. I mean, he puts me to shame. <laughs> yeah, um, he, he's 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 still irritated though that uh, they never created a series for him as the captain. He, that, was, oh. that was his that was his goal in life. And I think that's, if he has any regrets, it's that he was never made officially a, a captain on a series. Oh, there's still time. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, with the amount of Star Trek projects they're green lighting right now, I think Captain Sulu could finally be on its way. You may be right. So <laughs> yeah, a little hope, short hope. order. Yeah. Yeah, hope reigns supreme. Um, I mean, that's really, I didn't actually realise watching the episode that you did have footage from Undiscovered Country in there. That's quite interesting. I mean, did you go back to that film and kind of, you know, really study those scenes when you went to direct that then? Yes, because we had to match. Yeah. We had to match the lighting and everything else and the set and 
the costumes and and the visual style so that it that it did appear seamless. And yeah, so you go back and you look at what was there originally and you, you try to match it. Well, it gives you an opportunity to make as cinematic an episode as possible then, being that it's got to match up with this actual movie and even though it's a TV episode. It was an anniversary episode as well, I think. But... Yeah, that's right. Uh, we did that and uh, uh, Deep Space Nine did uh, a Tribbles episode. Yeah. Yes, Concurrent with that. Which I, I wanted to, I wanted to do that one, but they gave me the Voyager one. <laughs> but I really wanted, I really had to do the Tribbles one. Well, it came out very well anyway. So thank you, thank don't, you. Don't think you have to worry too much. And uh, um, skipping over to Enterprise for a second, of course, on that you directed an episode called Shuttlepod One, uh, which uh, Roger Lay Jr. when we interviewed him recommended to us. Again, that's a very different kind of feel for an episode in the sense it's almost like a two-hander play uh, between two actors, essentially, with uh, Dominic Keating and Clostermare uh, playing Trip and Reed stuck in that shuttle bar. Can you spell claustrophobia? <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, that was, a, that was a tough one. And uh, Rick wrote it, and uh, uh, he was very complimentary. He... Uh, he maybe called me twice during my whole career as a director to compliment me on my work. And that was one of them because he thought I had pulled off what he had written. Uh, because it was, it was a two-hander. It was, it was not a Star Trek episode. It was about two guys talking about life and, and, what, uh, and their wants and desires and, and whether they were going to make it out alive. Uh, and my goal was to try and keep the energy level and the visual level going even though these guys were slowly losing their energy and and succumbing so it was uh it was it was a tough one we also had to refrigerate the stages so we were all in in uh ski jackets and and winter gear while we were shooting it in order to try and get uh uh the breath which wasn't always successful but to see the uh, condensation from the breath and uh uh one side night side light in order to be able to to visualize this thing um, we had to keep taking apart the set. And one day, right before lunch, I called Herman Zimmerman over, the production designer, and said, Herman, I need, it, I need to cut the set in half. And he said, you can't cut the set in half. It's all one piece. And I said, Herman, I need to cut the set in half. He said, okay. He, br- he brought Tommy Arp over, who was the construction coordinator, and says, David wants to cut the set in half. Tommy said, okay, we'll do it during lunch. <laughs> so, so the construction came, crew came in, and they literally brought in saws and stuff and cut the set in half in order to be able to get different angles because otherwise it would have been hideously boring and, and have the same shots uh, throughout the whole episode. Uh, it's really interesting. Like, can, can you, like, uh, you know, I was always wondered about that because they always talk about like, how quickly these schedules work on these shows. Do you remember actually the occasion where you really felt like you had to kind of talk to a lead actor, that, you know, where there was a pivotal scene and you took that time? In fact, you, you almost planned it in. When I had to take time with an actor, I did. And at that point, you have to throw away the schedule. And you have to say, my responsibility is to get this right and not phone it in. And I, the only time I ever phoned it in was on my first episode, where at the end of Mind's Eye, uh, uh, Patrick Stewart was supposed to shoot uh, the Klingon or get in a fight with the Klingon. And we ran out of time. And the producer side of me said, okay, We'll just have Patrick tackle him or do something screwy. And it was horrible and boring and inane, and I regretted it forever. And I said to myself that night when I left the set that I was never going to do that again, and I never did. I learned my lesson. It was a hard one. And I said, you, you have a responsibility to the script to, to deliver it. The script is written. My job is to visualize it. And I failed in that respect. And that point on i never did it again but it was kind of like it was throwing off almost the shackles of you know your producing head as well i think at that moment you were turning like i don't consider myself a director yet and like when you are you know when you kind of went home and thought about it and you came back and directed again that was when you were kind of like that's it i get it now almost exactly i i wore two hats i always wore a baseball hat (laughs) and when i was producing the hat was facing forward when i'm directing you turn around the hat and that's that's the difference. So when people saw me with a hat turned around, they knew what mode I was in. And and I never let the producer side of me influence after that moment 
uh, what I was doing as a director, much to the chagrin of everybody that I worked with. But for the benefit of the show, absolutely. Yeah, the benefit of the show. I could care less what anybody thought about me at that point. I was doing my, I was getting paid uh, to the job. Yeah, yeah. You do the job that you're hired to do. Hmm. You don't do the job that you're, you know, you think people want you to do. The visitor from DS9, one of yours, um, feels like there's so much going on in there. And what, what, what was that like dealing with some of the really dense scripts, especially when it comes up against doing it in time and on a schedule? Is it just like, we know what we need to get and just make it work? You asked about working with actors. That's the one show where I worked with actors. Yeah. Uh, Tony Todd and Rachel Robinson, who is Andy Robinson's daughter, uh, Iris said, you rehearse with them ahead of time? And I said, okay. So I actually brought them over to my house and, and we rehearsed in front of my fireplace, which was a mirror of what we did on the set. Mm. So we actually, we actually rehearsed everything uh, before we went on the set. And it was critical because everything was shorthand at that point. And my, my only goal and job during that show was to prevent Tony Todd from crying on every take because he was so emotionally invested. And I said, Tony, you can't cry on this one. I'll let you cry on the next one, but you can't cry on this one. So we had this pact going on. But he was phenomenal. That's another two-handed show, basically, where it's two people sitting there talking about stuff. Yeah, he's, he's so I, great in that episode, yeah. And I imagine it's like yeah. most actors, you, you try and want the crying take. You're like, I'm going to push for the tears rather than hold yes. them back. <laughs> I know, I know. So I, I bless him for that. And it was uh, when I first, Steve, uh, uh, what's his name, told me that uh, when I was told about the script initially, I said, oh, God, not one of those. It's going to be Jake and his dad. And, and, and they said, no, no, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. And I said, no, no way. So I read and I said, oh, I don't know about this. So finally, and there was an epiphany, and the light bulb went off in my head. Because I went home and I looked at my son, who I think was 11 or something at the time, and I said, wait a minute, this is about my son and me. Mm. So I now had something to hang my hat on. Every, the whole script, whenever I had issues with it, I said, okay, this, this story is about a father and a son, and I'm a father and I have a son, and I get it. And that, that was my, my hook. It was my so it was something to hang my hat on and 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 have me emotionally invested in the material. Yeah. Because if you're not emotionally invested, then it's going to be bad. Awesome. Yeah. You have you have you have to find something. It doesn't. You don't have to explain it to the audience, and it's and nobody else needs to know about it. But you have to know something has to touch you about the material. Otherwise, it's rude and it's pro forma, and it ends up being boring. And you can tell that the director's not really there and invested yeah that's one of the great things about sci-fi though that you can you can hang so many big ideas on on this on this high concept i mean that episode is just kind of like this big metaphor you know people who who have like maybe someone who's missing or or someone who's died and not letting the grief like having to let that go but in this sci-fi context of somebody who keeps coming back until and trying to find a way of bringing them bringing them home in a way so it's like it taps into some really real things in, in amongst this big fantastical setup. That's very eloquent of you. Did you write that ahead of time? Uh, no. <laughs> I, I, am, I, am, I am impressed because that is a perfect capitalization of, of that episode was about. And dramatically, I think we pulled off exactly what you were talking about. Yeah. Rick, uh, that was the other show that Rick complimented me on. He called me into the office and he said, David, you made my wife cry. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, it's a very emotional piece of work, definitely. You can tell which is the, the writer of the three of us is Matt, of course. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Being that you've directed so many episodes of Star Trek, which episode would you say is the one for you where you're proudest of it? Would it be one of those two or would it be another one? Well, I'm pretty partial to the zombie episode. Uh, you're... you're site is called Spock, what is it? Spock. Spocklight. Yeah, Spocklight, which is great. I love that. <laughs> uh, there is a writer involved. So uh, the, the episode I'm talking about, where the Vulcans are infected by this uh, virus. Yes, I've they heard all become, about it, yeah. They, they all, this was on uh, Enterprise, and they all become zombies. And that was my 
favorite episode to actually direct because it wasn't a Star Trek episode. It was a zombie movie. That's all. That, so par- parenthetically, <laughs> if you have a chance to see see that one, uh, if you want to see a zombie movie, you can watch that one. Oh, yeah. We'll, 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 def- yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll definitely watch it, David. One episode did watch recent regeneration, the Borg episode of Enterprise. Uh, which was really, really great um, and very exciting. It kind of really, really captured that uh, kind of the thrills and spills of, of first contact, very much so, in the sense of uh, kind of action driven. And one of the things I noticed while I was watching it is I was really impressed uh, by the visuals, but also what I was hearing in terms of the score. And I was thinking to myself, like, oh, whoever did the score for this episode, Clayton went on to big things. I looked it up, and of course, it was uh, Mr. Brian Tyler, who now kind of scores in the Fast and Furious and Marvel movies. Uh, is that an episode that stands out for you? Okay, uh, Regeneration. Just <laughs> help me here. I directed it, correct? Is that right? <laughs> you did, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, oh, okay. the okay. Okay. episode of Enterprise. <laughs> Okay, got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that, that was a good one. Uh, you talked about composers. It's very interesting because we did have great composers. Dennis McCarthy, Jay Chataway, wonderful guys. And I'm going to relate one story. When I did Power Play... Uh, oh, I love it. I love did, Power Play. They, they did not like me to go to uh, post-production events. When you're an episodic director, you do your cut and then you turn it over to post-production. But I wanted to participate in the whole process. So I would go and, and I'd, I'd go to the spotting sessions for music. And on power play, I sat in the room with Dennis McCarthy and I said, you know, Dennis, I know that Rick hates military music and he doesn't like syncopated uh, music and, and martial kind of stuff that he wants to that he wants music to be underscored. I said, power play is about the ship being taken over by these, these creatures, and we should have something that, a music score that reflects it. And he says, okay, David, I'll do it. And he did it, and it was, in my mind, it was the first score that had balls to it. And it was one of the, Rick had exquisite taste and ran the show impeccably and made it all happen. But the one area where I had reservations about what he did was in terms of the music and on that episode dennis went for it and subsequent to that i think that the music kind of did change on the show i'm not saying it was exclusively because of what i said to dennis but it was clear that a lot of us felt that the music didn't have enough power behind it and as you say on regeneration that rick finally let that go yeah yeah, it's, re- it's just a great score. It just felt, just immediately, as soon as I was watching it, I was just like, right, this is an individual score for this episode. This isn't kind of well, some re- reused score. This has been specially crafted for this particular episode. I will now have to go back and watch it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 there you go. I mean, yeah, yeah it's, it's, but, it's a really good cool, But, I mean, you have directed so many that they're, they're bound to, at some point, start to blame. Yeah, I, I, I just want to say about Power Play, like, and I was making the allusion earlier to, like, different films that you kind of maybe took inspiration from. But is it is it true, like, maybe looked at Key Largo for that one? Like, the sort of very much close quarters, very intense kind of hostage situation. Is that um, inspiration, maybe? Mm-hmm. I, I love Key Largo, but my my one uh, uh, pointed reference was the Manchurian Candidate. I'm a great John Frankenheimer fan, and and I tried to do something that way. But uh, you know, it's it's all more for me to, to just have some fun. Tell us some movies that inspired you to become a director that made you want to go down that path. Alfred Hitchcock is my favorite director. Uh, Vertigo is is an incredible masterpiece because it reflects this guy's obsession, uh, his voyeurism, his id. Uh, uh, North by Northwest is one of my favorite movies. I'm also a huge uh, John Ford fan. Uh, The Searchers, which is John Wayne's greatest performance. Uh, That moment where he lifts up Natalie Wood and says, uh, and you don't know whether he's going to kiss her or kill her. Uh, There's these seminal moments of what he did with Monument Valley and how he photographed it. Greg Tolan is the cinematographer. Uh, our, our literature of the 20th and 21st century is, is film. And that's, that's my, that's my, that's my, I read a lot, but my true literature is, is film. Um, Orson Welles, uh, I, I mean, it, it sounds like a cliche, but you name these guys and, uh, yeah. Who do you guys like? 
Oh, well, there, I mean, they're, they're certainly good choices. Um, I, both me and Paul massive Sam Peckinpah fans. Yeah, except for Straw Dogs. Oh, you don't don't like Straw Dogs? It's sick. It's sick <laughs> it's it. Maybe I'm just a sick man, David. Maybe I'm just no, a sick man. No, it, but it's, it's really a perverted film about inhumanity. I mean, ooh. Yeah, that's, that's exactly why I love maybe, it. Maybe that's the point. I don't know. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, we we, we, okay. we, we basically like just the people keeping the back and far flame alive, like really, just sort of, you know, in in this era as well, like yeah, you know, just sit, sort of say that you still love like those kind of movies. Yeah, no, well, it very, makes very, very much so. it makes um, the it makes it makes the wild bunch look like Mary Poppins. So. <laughs> yeah, 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 indeed. You're a big Spielberg man, aren't you? Paul? Yeah, yeah. I think well, I was sort of a child of the '80s, so like all I had on TV was like you know Spielberg and Lucas kind of growing up in the Zemeckis era. So yeah, I think I kind of like fell in love with cinema that way. But I've just become such a cinephile like since then, and like just I, yeah, all I, I watch is old movies pretty much now, and just going and discovering like you know films I, I'd never even uh, considered. Yeah, before when I when I was at USC, uh, two years ahead of me, had, he had already left. Uh, was this guy who made all these student films? One of them was called THX 1138B, and he was already a revered uh, figure. We studied uh, Lucas's films, his student films, in film school. Wow, God's it's honest true. truth. Yeah, so he, two he years all, after he graduated, like he's already like yeah, being taught. And and, Z- and Zemeckis. Zemeckis one year behind me, and uh, Carpenter, John Carpenter, was a contemporary. So uh, we had, we had, yeah, we're all competent fans. We, yeah. we had we had quite a class. Uh, I was I was deeply humbled to work with all those guys, and uh, they they became in the pantheon. Uh, yeah, but uh, Luke, Lucas was wild. He uh, he was also quite the um, the doer. He uh, in order to make uh, THX. Uh, the Navy had a program where they brought their, uh, uh, their, their the guys, the cadets there to uh, to learn how to work equipment. So that out in the field, they knew what they were doing. And they had a bunch of equipment there. And Lucas uh, conned the Navy into writing the the, uh, the Navy guys and the equipment uh, free to do his uh, to do THX. So <laughs> right right at the beginning, you knew that he was going to be a success, not only creatively, but uh, in terms of getting something done. I know. It's like when you see him in interviews, you see how kind of meek he sounds sometimes when he talks about it, so low-key. But to think Not that true. he had the way to twist people's arms, the kind of this man. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, no, he uh, he got it done. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, another favourite uh, director of mine, David, who I, I didn't say immediately, cause just because you might not have heard of him, is a British director called Shane Meadows. Uh, I do not know it. Yeah, he, he directed a bunch of fantastic films, uh, chiefly uh, Dead Man's Shoes and This Is England, which are both uh, amazing pieces of work, which I definitely recommend you checking out. Well, email me with the guy's name again, would you? Yeah, no, I will again? do, definitely. I mean, he's a, he's, a really, he's a really great director. I mean, I think it's one of those ones where he might not have as much international recognition because he's been very much... He's a very popular British director. I know he's been offered kind of Hollywood kind of like movies and stuff, and he's been very rejecting of it, wanting to stay in England and keep making British films. So and keep this kind of small little industry we have over here alive. So that's quite interesting. Well, good for him. Anybody who gets a movie done, I have great admiration for him. So I would like to see his movies, and hopefully they're on Netflix. Yeah, I, I certainly think uh, some of them are. Yeah, well, you, you get you get much more choice over there with your Netflix than we do. Yeah, no, it's probably yeah we get a different selection over here, but we do get Star Trek Discovery on Netflix over here. So very good. Are you a fan of Discovery, David? I have not watched it. Okay, interesting. Like, I mean, I suppose yeah. the thing is. As you say, you weren't you weren't a big you weren't a hardcore fan before, so now you're not in the in the kind of Star Trek game, as it were. Maybe you're kind of yeah. just not as, as attracted to it. Also, I'm very bitter. They won't hire me. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you never know. Season season two's been greenlit, so you never know. Like, are they could the call could be coming around at any time. Going kind of like you know, it, you've got you've got the experience. It will not happen. 
but that's okay. Thank you. Thank you for the kind words. Well, yeah, yeah also, like yeah. Uh, we 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 will start the petition now. Like uh... <laughs> as a kind of almost like an outsider, much like ourselves to the Star Trek universe. You know, there are occasions where we kind of like raise an eyebrow about some of the things in Star Trek, and I wonder what your take on it is. Firstly, so why if there's no money in the future? Why is there a bar? Uh, like, you know, how does Quark, like, well, what do they pay with? Like, <laughs> does he make that money? Yeah, did they ever, like, anybody ask that question on the set? It's a TV show. Yeah, I, exactly. <laughs> I thought it was like, Come on. It's, it, what, what you put on the screen is what the audience hopefully believes. And all this stuff about not honoring the Star Trek tradition and what you're saying about gold-plated latinum and all that stuff, it doesn't matter. The, the audience... I it's the willing suspension of disbelief and I'm the first sucker. I yeah. go into a movie and I I am there. I am not a critic. And unless it's an unbelievably ridiculous faux pas, I, I'm I'm there for every second. So uh, the audience will basically if you're if you're true to the story and true to the characters, the audience will basically accept anything that you give them. In my in my humble opinion. Well, I'm very forgiving. I absolutely agree with that. Yeah, I agree. Matt, I know there's a particular episode you want me to ask about, but I just realised when we were going around doing a bit of a roundtable on favourite directors, you would say one for you. Oh, well, for me at the time, I mean, I'm I'm, I'm under the Spielberg Zemeckis generation as well, but also as it went on, uh, John Hughes I really gravitated towards. I really love old Steve Martin and John Candy films, everything with those guys. I just like, yeah, anything like that. And there's a lot of good guys around at the moment. So I'm, I'm very much on the pulse as much as I can be for new stuff as well. Like, has there been any, well, uh, any new films of yours that have jumped out? Well, I, just to comment on John Hughes, yeah. he, really, he really changed the paradigm of, uh, of teen films. Um, and Ferris Bueller is, is one of my favorites. Yeah. Uh, I, think, I think the twist and shout sequence, uh, I get, I'm a huge Beatles fan. I have my Beatles hat on now. My my favorite film is A Hard Day's Night. Oh, beautiful! I have the one, I, I have the one sheet poster of it in my, uh, in my hallway, um, and and ninety nine percent of the songs on my iPhone are, are Beatles songs. So uh, uh, I get it. But but Hughes again, he he really he understood teen angst mm. and was able to express it in a comedic way. And I don't think he really gets the credit for uh, the, the kind of the revolution in, in, in that point of view that he presented. So that's a good choice, I think. Yeah, because they were so funny, but they're also so true. And it's like, it is amazing to think that he was like a middle-aged man, but he was getting to the core of what was going on in the teen psyche, like especially back in the 80s as well. Yeah, he, remem- he remembered what it was like. And, mm. and that the, we, all, we all experience this stuff. But what an artist does, they're able to uh, objectify it and present it so that other people can experience it as well. That's what that's what artists do. We all we all experience life and have these incredible emotions, but it takes the artist to be able to have us all be able to collectively share it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I, I went on a big kick of classic films the other year as well. I got I really had a deep dive into my Bogart. Like I love any, all the Humphrey Bogart films. Uh, and quite a lot of old stuff, like along with uh, 12 Angry Men is one of my favorites, and then on the TV side, the Twilight Zone original series. So I think there's just so much great stuff being done around back in those days. It's, uh, it's great to revisit. My favorite show was The Twilight Zone. Yeah. Um, uh, when I was in the eighth grade, I actually read in my, we had an anthology of short stories, and they had made a short story version of the, uh, of the Twilight Zone that Rod Serling wrote about uh, the people who have the bomb shelter mm-hmm. and, uh, and and it's the moral struggle of whether or not to let anybody into the bomb shelter when there's a, fo- a false uh, scare of, a, of an imminent attack. Yeah. Uh, so the, the writing on that, well, Rod Serling was, in my mind, the greatest writer of that, of that era and maybe in the history of, of television. He and Patty Chayefsky. But but uh, every Twilight Zone, man, they, they blew me away. Yeah, absolutely. Like, there, was, um, there was a Twilight Zone theatre production in London uh, last year. I don't know how far it's travelled, but I went to see it, and it was really amazing. It's essentially kind of seven or eight of the original episodes reimagined the stage and cut up so it all happens in sequentially. And the, that bombshell one was one of them. 
and that that took wow. like one of the biggest chunks actually one of the straightforward chunks where it was just this group of like seven or eight people kind of arguing over being let in and it was kind of the high point of the whole show actually it was a really really great production I would watch that in a second. One of my favorite subsets of Trek episodes are the one where it seems every series has at least one where they end up back on Earth for a big for a big time travel call. So you've got City on the Edge of Forever from the original series and Past Tense from DS9. Uh, and you directed the first part of Future's End of Voyager, which was a really great uh, double episode I've just watched recently. Uh, with a young Sarah Silverman, of course. What was it like working with her back then? Well, she, she had already cut her teeth on Saturday Night Live as a writer mm. and was trying to establish herself as an actress. And she was phenomenal. She had this, she brought this unbelievable spirit and energy and vitality to the set. And, and she was fearless. And I remember when we finished the episode, as we, and I think uh, Marvin Rush and I were walking out to the parking lot with her, and, and Marvin said to her, he said, you're going to be a big star. <laughs> <laughs> and she's, she's done all right by herself. I've been to her one-woman shows, and uh, she's, she's out there, I'll tell you. Yeah. She's quite the comedian. You can't dip your toes in other series while you're working on Star Trek. But what was it that kept drawing you back to Trek rather than going, like, you know, exploring some other shows? What was the, the big pull for you there? Rick Lummy. <laughs> right, it was, okay. It, it was simply that I, at, at one point after the first uh, year of. V-Space uh, 9, I did not want to be a desk jockey anymore and work as a, a producer. So I quit. And Rick was so gracious that he kept hiring me back uh, so that I still had a, a directing career. It's, you get typecast in episodic television, and I certainly was. Uh, and it was difficult to get jobs on other shows. Uh, wow. And Rick kept hiring me, so... Uh, Again, I'm forever grateful for him to be able to keep giving me the opportunity. I did work on other other series. Um, I did a I produced and then uh, left that uh, seven days, but I got to do several of those as well. But basically, uh, the other shows I did, I only did one episode on, and there weren't a lot of them. Uh, so my bread and butter was Star Trek, and and I had a good career. I'm 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 exceedingly grateful for the opportunity. So it's a case of really, in the sense of, would you, would you still want to, would you still want to go back to directing now, or are you very much settled into the photography way of life? I would love to direct again, uh, but it's, it's tough. Um, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. Have you ever kind of um, like you know because of the fact, I suppose, you've still got all these uh, ideas in kind of uh, jaws somewhere. Have you ever thought of trying to get a project off the ground, kind of something kind of personal of your kind of like original work? Um, yes, uh, you're always you're always trying. I, I finished the feature script uh, two months ago and I've, oh, been wow. shop, I've been shopping that around. It's a, uh, a woman in uh, jeopardy, uh, exploitation, woman empowerment film. Uh, and uh, kind of cheesy and very violent, but uh, other than that, it's great. Um, and and uh, I've I've interviewed for jobs. Uh, I tried to get work on the Seth MacFarlane uh, Star Trek spinoff. What's it Orville. called? Uh, Orville, yeah. Uh, but uh, they have chosen not to hire me. So I, I, I'm not trying to have sour grapes or anything, but it, it's tough. There's also ageism involved. Uh, I'm no spring chicken, and there's a lot of uh, hungry uh, men and women out there who want to direct. And, and again, it's, you, you get typecast. So the people that get hired on a lot of these shows work on those shows. And that's certainly how I started. I, I would not have had a directing career unless I was working on the Star Trek series as a producer. It wouldn't have happened. Yeah, you're part of the family. And it, you know, it kind of kept you in that world and keep people in their kind of periphery all the time, wasn't it? Exactly. Yeah. I think it's like it's good you kind of went for the Orville as well because I know we're talking to James L. Conway about like how the sensibilities that you show on Star Trek, like the, your knowledge of the lighting and the, and the kind of the, the tone of that show, is kind of what they're looking for. But it's like it is kind of like typecasting, isn't it, in a way? But in a good way, you just want to be able to kind of be, be hired for like what you're exceedingly good at. Yeah, and but one of my issues with Star Trek was I was always tilting against the windmills and. And I would, I would get lectured not regularly, but 
about pushing the envelope and, and trying to get Star Trek out of its safe zone, which I felt that it that it really did. Uh, one of my objections to Enterprise was when I I shouldn't even be saying this publicly, but uh, when first started, they talked about a, a more gentle uh, Star Trek, that it wasn't going to be as stunt-oriented and action-oriented. And I, and I said to them, I said, are you guys nuts? You're going to compete in this world uh, of television, which is evolving into this, uh, you know, incredible uh, renaissance. And you're going to soften what you're doing and you're going to play it safe. Um, and I think it hurt the show. I think, yeah, you're right. Time-wise, 24 just started around Enterprise. Yeah, exactly. And you've exactly. got, like, cliffhanger and, and every week. And it just, like... Exactly. And you can, exactly. And you can put, put Enterprise up against that, and you're just thinking, like, it just feels like Grandad's old slippers or something. Well, <laughs> uh, I, I would love to use that term, Grandad's old slippers. I'm going to use that. I, I mean, it's... Um, and <laughs> I mean, I think you were completely right, David, to be honest. At the beginning, I mean, I would say that, if anything, it seems to me like they kind of took your advice a bit in the later seasons, in season three and four, trying to make a more serialized, kind of action-heavy show. That's what happened. They finally they finally saw the light, and but it was too late. Uh, yeah. cer- certainly it started in season three, and then when Manny Cotto took over as the, uh, the show in season four... Uh, it, it started to show some real life, and uh, but by then uh, the ship had sailed, and Paramount already had agreed that they were going to cancel the show at the end of the first season. Yeah, I mean, I can understand your frustration with it because it, it's funny when we talk about Enterprise on uh, the podcast and we watch the card pilot and everything, um, which he, you know it, it is good on its own terms and everything like that, but it was um, a case of I think we looked at the, the show overall. Uh, early years of the show and it is a thing of you think this is the time when you're doing this prequel and taking it back to the beginning where you should be taking the risk to make it perhaps a harder edgier more gritty show of you know the first ever steps out into deep space and exploring other races and really i felt like it just seemed from the start like just another star trek show if you see what i mean why weren't you on the show? <laughs> <laughs> I actually think Enterprise kind of definitely gets better as it goes along, certainly. And uh, I think there's 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 definitely there's gems to find, like like Regeneration, which we were talking about, which you yourself directed but can't remember, so you have to watch it. <laughs> yeah, no, I remember. I went on the board ship. I got to shoot a lot of boards, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. I think yeah, it's, yeah. it's uh, quite famous actually for your style of like you know you were so quick with the act. Your edit of that show ran too short, so you had to fill in some, shoot some filler. Every every show I did ran short because <laughs> I sped up the action, and I would get regularly yelled at because <laughs> I did that. Uh, but I, I my clock ran at a different speed than other people, and uh, I just wanted to get it going. Um, so what they did was they created what was called pillar filler, and Michael would have to write uh, uh, new scenes in order to. Uh, to flesh out the episode, or to get time on the episode, not to flesh it out. It was it was filler. Talking about the Beatles, have you seen the Beatles' Love yet in Vegas? Yes, I have, and I cried many times doing it. It's My amazing, wife and isn't I went it? it? Yeah, it's a great show, and uh, George uh, George Martin's son, he did a wonderful job uh, mm. putting it together. I have the Love album as well. Oh, it's amazing! Uh, it's, uh, so it's 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 terrific. But the show the show is very emotional, and it was emotional for me. I mean, I I've met. I, I met George Harrison. I shook his hand. I didn't wash my hand all day long. He had the most gent- he had the most gentle demeanor and handshake and these long spindly fingers. This was back in 1971, I think, that I met him. Uh, and I went uh, in 1966. I won tickets on the radio where you would call in on your phone, um, and if you got in at the right point, you could win tickets. And I won four seats to the Beatles concert at. Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles. Wow! Uh, in six, and it was the second to the last public performance for the uh, rooftop performance at oh. Apple. Wow. The last, the last, the last concert was at uh, uh, Candlestick Park in San Francisco. And then, cut to forty-eight years later, I go to Dodger Stadium and I see Paul McCartney perform, which was really surrealistic. Mm. 
Are you so but, uh, are you one of are you in the background of uh, the Beatles eight days a week the touring years then? I'm I'm the fifth Beatle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we went out to Vegas in 2007 and saw Beatles of them while we were there, and he's just stunning, absolutely amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, they uh, they changed they they changed my life. I can't even imagine what it'd be well, like to have been seeing them no. live in the heyday as well. Oh my god. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a picture. I think my sister has it. I don't have it of me with my. Uh, my collarless jacket where I, I had a suit jacket and I turned the collar in and had long hair and long hair meant that it touched my ear. So, so this was in, this was back in 65. It was, uh, yeah, it's pretty crazy. Have you, um, you ever, ever wanted to kind of do sort of musical, like, you know, in TV or film, like, is that kind of, or just that one side of your life and this is, and TV directs completely separate. We ever wanted to kind of meld your two loves. I would have loved to have done uh, music videos, but, Again, that's kind of a highly specialized uh, field. Uh, so, but yeah, mu- I, I love music. My, 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 one of my favorite films, not just my favorite music, is Thing in the Rain. Uh, it's a masterpiece, and it's, it's about the making of movies. And uh, So I'm a, I'm a great fan of the, of the musical, of course, oh, yeah, it's Thing in the Rain. When we've spoken to some directors before who have directed kind of multiple episodes from the different series, they came across kind of scheduling conflicts where there was kind of episodes that they missed out on directing or anything like that. Like, was that ever the case for you, or was there ever kind of were you ever in contention for directing any of the kind of TNG movies that were going on at the time, or do you ever have those talks? Well, I, I would have loved to have been considered to direct one of the TNG features, uh, but I wasn't high enough on the food chain. Really, that was Jonathan Frakes' deal. Um, so, yeah, I would have loved to have. I, I would have loved to have been considered for the pilots. I'm sure that my name probably came up on a list, but again, uh, I wasn't uh, high up to to be to be able to be considered. But I would have loved to have done a pilot. Um, my only badge of of honor for the for all the four series is that I ended up directing 62 episodes, which I believe was the most of any of any director. So uh, I'm I'm grateful to have that uh, that represented. Yeah, I mean that's that's that's, that's interesting in terms of it's. I'm very glad that you know that stat that it was the kind of highest up there because it's interesting you say in terms of not high up enough for Vuce, but I mean you know you were obviously trusted enough to direct that huge body of work. Yeah, it's, I, I still don't quite understand it. I, and it's all because of Rick Berman. Um, I, I wasn't always the favorite of the actors or the production or the studio, and Rick stood by me. And I never really sat down and talked to him about it, but my assumption is, is that he realized that, that I didn't leave anything on the stage floor that uh, that there, there wasn't anything left to give I, I i never walked away from it and that i gave it everything i had and that uh he liked the work and the bottom line is if you like the work hire the person yeah and he did 100 i mean you know I, I think to be honest that's one of those things where david i think that speaks for itself in regards to your kind of talent as a director, to be honest, that you would have been kind of hired back that many times, and you know, clearly, I think you can be very proud of the work you did there. Yeah, thank you. I uh, I agree with that, and uh, I think the uh, the regular retainer that I've paid, Mr. Berman, has uh, paid off handsomely. <laughs> can you think of uh, what might have been the most technically challenging episode that you might have done? Because I'm reading about like Planet Hell and. I think it probably would have got that name from being like one of those difficult sets to work on with all of the wind and the effects, lighting effects. But like, can you recall, like, particularly for you as a director, te- you know, from a technical standpoint, what was the most challenging to pull off? Um, probably the episode like crossover because everything was new. Even though it was the standing sets, everything had to be relit. And, and change, and you had to change the visual style of the show because you were in a different universe. And so what I had to do was most of my, one of the reasons I went over a day was because I was waiting on the cinematographer to light the set. And I knew that was gonna be the case. And I didn't want him to not get dark and moody because it had to be in order to, to mirror what was happening in that, in that particular universe. So uh, 
when I when you say technically challenging, it's it's technically challenging when the director has to wait 45 minutes to an hour uh, for shot to be lit, knowing that his his day is being burned and that he's going to be yelled at by the studio at the end saying. Uh, you've got to go faster. Well, how do you go faster? I don't, I don't like the set. And I love Marvin Rush. I hired Marvin Rush originally on The Next Generation. But I had given him his time to be able to light it the way that I and he, both of us knew that it had to be lit. Mm. So technical challenges are in episodic television or when the director's day is being uh, burned up by uh, the lighting. Because you can't, you, you don't have any time left to do anything. Yeah, it's hurry up, yeah. isn't it? It's, that's the way. Hurry, hurry up and wait, yes. Trapped exactly. in your very own mirror universe. Um, okay. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking this well, yeah, because they there was such um, adherence, like people kind of re- remark about the next generation visuals and how bright and light it is, but that simply is just a, a time factor that causes it to look that way. You know, we're shooting this show for syndication, and, the, and it's like such a such a like you know these things didn't seem to be done that quickly. They couldn't really play about of it. And so when you had an episode where literally that is the point you're playing with the look of it, it is, it is you know, worth spending the time for it. Exactly. And uh, I was in production. I know all about it. And you have, you expect things to go game every single day. Well, it doesn't. Things change. You have to... What, what a lot of production people do is they don't read the script right. They think, oh, it's just another cookie-cutter show. Well, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it requires a little bit extra, and production people, especially in episodic, don't don't see that. Well, but that's okay. I, I I'm glad that I had the opportunity to do those because those are the standout episodes. Those are the ones where people say, "Oh, that was that was cool." Yeah, amazing. What, what, uh, speaking of TV today, is there anyone watching currently that you're a big fan of? I'm a snob. I do not watch episodic <laughs> television except. For British crime dramas. Oh, very oh good. which the British crime dramas? I, every one of them. I love them on Netflix. And I'm, I also only read uh, lurid uh, uh, crime fiction. That's all I do. Uh, <laughs> so I love that. And, and I, I watch a lot of movies. My wife and I go to a lot. I have Apple TV. I have Netflix. I have Amazon Prime Video. I watch movies. I do not watch. Uh, I do not watch television. I'm a snob. Like so speaking as a snob, what are the the films recently you've seen in the in the grand cinema that are really standing out for you? I'm a big fan of documentaries, but the Mr. Rogers documentary is wonderful. Oh, okay. I, I tried a, a couple times. Yeah, mm. uh, it's it's a really wonderful job. The guy who. Uh, put it together and directed it. I think has been has won an Oscar, been nominated before, and it's really it really captures a time and a sociological uh, phenomenon that this guy uh, created. Uh, so uh, oh, I I haven't Quiet Place is now on Apple TV, so I'm looking forward to seeing that. Right. What, what's that? You know the film? Which film? A, a Quiet Place. A quiet oh, yes. place. oh yeah, we've all yeah we've all seen that. But um, okay. at, the, at the cinema where it wasn't a quiet place, lots of people breaking the rules and uh, talking, me. driving me mad. <laughs> um, it is it is it is very good. Yeah, it's very good. Okay, you know I should probably get back. Uh, I may have to go to work here. Yeah, that's that's so, totally uh, cool, man. Um, before before we let you go, not to turn it into the Beatles podcast, but just for my own peace of mind, favorite Beatles album and favorite Beatles song. Um, well, I remember on a Sunday driving home to my house Sunday morning, listening to Sgt. Pepper, and it was a incredible experience. But I have to probably say that my favorite Beatles song is "A Hard Day's Night." And maybe Abbey Road. Uh, I think it's Paul McCartney's masterpiece. The second, uh, the B side of Abbey Road yeah. is Golden really Sunders, an incredible. I, I mean, it's an incredible piece of musicianship and how he melded together all these little bits of uh, of stuff. And uh, so, yeah, I think I think those would be. I, those would be two, the, the two, uh, Hard Day's Night. And, I think Abbey Road's um, mine as well. It changes a lot, but it's Abbey Road at the moment. <laughs> it's it's Sgt. Yeah. Pepper for I, me as an album, but, you know, they're all great. Yeah, I, and I have all the British versions in a box. Well done. Uh, the, you know, the cab versions uh, here in the States are were hard. They were cardboardy and, and stiff. But the, uh, the English versions, as you guys know, they have this shiny vinyl kind of, 
uh, quality to them, and uh, I, I have all of them in a box. That's how a spray shiny. Yeah, yeah, shiny. I, I got to get a uh, record player. I want to play them again. Yeah, well, vinyl, vinyl's making stuff. a big comeback. I know. I, I hear you. So I'm going to get one and uh, <laughs> yeah. and, li- and listen and go analog for a day or so. <laughs> right. We'll let you go, David. But it's been really nice speaking to you. Thank you very much for taking the time. Best of luck with the uh, weekend and the job. And it's been great talking to you. Thank you very much, guys. I appreciate it. It was fun, and uh, good luck with your endeavors, and uh, thank you again for having me. If you enjoyed this episode of Spotlight and wish to support us, you can rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, like our Facebook page, and follow us on Twitter at SpotlightPod. You can also get in touch and drop us a message directly by emailing spotlightpod at gmail.com.